It's a fascinating conversation today with Jonathan Halls, who's the author of Confessions of a Corporate Trainer, and that's a very tantalizing title, as you can guess. So I asked Jonathan on the show to find out why he wrote that book, what's in that book, and why it could be of interest to people who are in the learning profession. Jonathan is a master trainer. He has developed his own models to help facilitate great learning experiences, and that really became the focus of today's conversation. I asked Jonathan, among other things, how we as learning professionals can flip things around from training where we are the center of attention, we call this trainer-centric learning, to more about facilitating an experience where learners actually un- undercover, uncover, understand, and unlock. And you can think of this as learner-centric learning. So what does this mean? Well, it really means that as learning professionals, we need to become consciously aware of the need to step back and step out of the way so that our clients can become the center of attention. And when we do this, amazing things can happen. In today's episode, how you can get results both inside and outside the classroom. What is the flipped classroom model? What does Jonathan mean by the term extended classroom? How can you get learners to think more for themselves? What should you be telling learning stakeholders in rationalizing your particular approach to learner-centric learning, and why you need to rethink how learning takes place in your training sessions. This is the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett-Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark. This is the Training Business Podcast. And every single Thursday, we have an episode of the show. If this is your first time here, welcome. If this is not your first time here, welcome uh, back. And it's great to know that you are finding value in this. And I appreciate the messages from you as each week you give me feedback on episodes from the previous week and also give me a kind of a steer as to the topics and the guests that you would like me to have and address on the show. Now, this is the podcast for people out there in the world of training and development, learning and development. You could be in corporate, you could be someone who works for themselves, but this is the show for you as a learning and development professional. And as I said before the music, today's guest is the author of Confessions of a Corporate Trainer. His name is Jonathan Halls. And it's a fantastic topic as we share experience and views on what makes for a great learning environment. Jonathan, hi. Welcome to the show. Hi there. So you're the author of a a book I've been meaning to read for a while, and you were recommended to me by Lisa Spinelli. Um, And the book you wrote is called Confessions of a Corporate Trainer. Now, we are both experienced trainers. What made you want to write that book? Because I love the title. And it sounds tantalizing. What exactly is, is, is behind the book and what made you want to write the book? Well, you know, I, I train trainers and coach trainers, and I work with training executives who are trying to make their organizations more focused on talent development. And I have come to the, uh, through my experiences, I've come to realize how our mindset is so not focused on learning but it's kind of sidetracked by lots and lots of different things. Often when I do a uh, workshop with new trainers, 
I'll ask them to tell me what they think um, is important for a trainer to do or not to do. What makes a good trainer? And things come up like this. Oh, you can't walk in front of the projector screen or you can't um and ah. If you do that, that's definitely not very, very um, professional. And they do all these things that are all about how we present and what we give. And I often say, well, does that actually stop somebody from learning? If I walk in front of the projector screen and I have a PowerPoint slide on my white shirt because it's projected there, sure, that doesn't look good, but will that actually stop learning? And when you come down to it, if you actually think about what learning is, no, it doesn't. Yet our culture seems to think that training is all about what we present. Mm. It's almost like it's a theatre show. It's performance, yeah. It's a performance. And when I see really powerful trainers in um, action, they don't do any presenting at all. In fact, they step back and they let the learners do the work of the learning. And in, I suppose, my, what, 30 years of uh, corporate training, I first did my, did my first ever training session in 1987 teaching radio broadcasting. And in my time, I've gone from being the guy that wants to be a great trainer who stands up front looking good to actually I get more, uh, more results by stepping out of the way. There's a book, and I wish I'd written this book because the title is so good. It's written by a guy who was writing for the university market and it says, How to Teach with Your Mouth Shut. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think, man, if I had that, so that's why we've got confessions. I would have preferred his title. But really, that's kind of where things are at. Our profession has got so much potential to change the world. We have got phenomenal people who are in the roles of trainers, and yet we're not giving them the resources and the training to really uh, achieve that potential. And the way we're structuring our training departments, the way we're looking at learning, the way people who are stakeholders and clients expect stuff from us is not geared to actually helping people help people be good at what they do. And I guess that's what really motivated me. And I just kind of wanted to poke fun at our profession while at the same time celebrating all that we have to offer. Mm. It, it, it harkens back to my experience as well. When I began training, uh, first time was in Disney. Um, I'm quite proud of that, actually, because I think Disney's a fantastic organization. But what I was asked to do was to stand up and talk. And I literally was hoarse. Uh, after three days. And no one had pointed out to me that you should give the people in the audience the chance to speak. And I think that ties into what you're saying about uh, the the feeling that people have when they think of training. They think of performance. They think of um, theatrical, uh, they think in theatrical terms, the, the audience, the script. Um, it's, it's the person on the stage. Uh, and that's certainly a term we used at Disney, on stage, off stage. So we, we tend to think of the, the trainer as being the person through which all things must come and from which all things must originate. But actually, no, I think these days people realize, um, thanks to some of the people you've mentioned and, and will mention in today's show, that people realize we need to get out of the way. We need to facilitate a learning experience. We don't necessarily need to be the center of attention. Absolutely. And in fact, um, the working title of another book I'm working on at the moment is called The Invisible Trainer. Oh, I like and that. We, when we are invisible, we're doing our work well. Mm. It's, it's interesting too, you know, the, the kind of pressure put on trainers by clients and stakeholders and mm. managers um, and lots of people in training and development roles or managing training and development departments, I should say, who don't really understand learning, all that pressure they put on people to be good out the front really, really is a huge burden to carry. And no. it means that, 
basically in a classroom or a virtual room, um, the energy is going to be either up front or with the participants. And while ever it's up front, the participants have got nothing better to do than to watch how you talk, whether you play with your wedding ring, whether you keep your hands in your pocket. They're going to be monitoring everything you do, how many times you use a certain phrase. But when we stop doing all that work and we say, well, here's a problem, try and solve it, and now they're firing their neurons, the energy is in the classroom, um, they've got no time to see whether we're any good at all. And they're going to be so focused and engaged on that learning, incredible things happen. One of the things that I get um, a little bit miffed by, and maybe I'm a puritanical wretch and I spend too much time thinking about these things, but people who say, oh, as a trainer, I bring energy into the room. And I think, my gosh, that is so self-centered. Actually, as a trainer, our job is not to bring our energy into the room. Our job is to unleash the energy of the learners so they can focus. They know better than what we than we ever will what they need to be good at what they're doing. Mm. And I think this kind of shift away from a theatre show to really what we should be doing is we should be physical therapists. Our job is for people to come into the classroom and we're going to help them stretch the right muscles so they can do their job. But we can't stretch the muscle for them. Correct. They have to do the stretch. It reminds me of the time when um, somebody laughed at me. I, <laughs> I've been to the gym about two times in my entire life, which is not bad for a middle-aged man like me. But <laughs> the, the first time, well, sorry, the first time in America, I go in there because I had high cholesterol and someone said that will get rid of high cholesterol, go to the gym. So I get this time with the instructor and I say, well, okay, um, what do I need to do? And he shows me how to do the, the, the push-ups and the chin-ups and what weights to lift and how to use machines. I thought, oh, that's very good. Thank you very much. Off I went. I'd been to the gym. I didn't do any exercise. No muscle has grown. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes training programs are like that. People come and they listen to us tell our stories, but they don't yeah, do anything. It's all about us and our script and our, our message. And I'm on stage and I feel good about myself. And I have to say, I mean, inevitably, I will feel good about myself because I've, I've been the center of attention. And I feel I've helped people. But when I think of it, and I really think deeply about this, I think that's no proof that anything's actually happened. They come away thinking Mark's great. And uh, we've had a laugh. We've found a couple of things about him and about ourselves. But if, has, the business, has the business need been met? Have people actually gone through an experience which is conducive to becoming more valuable to their employer or to themselves? That's yeah. the question. And the interesting thing is, being the center of attention, being up front, they are the rules many people are being told to follow because mm. this is what clients expect as a good training session. This is what stakeholders expect. And many training organizations are run by people who don't know much about learning psychology at all. And so they're saying, well, if you don't have a smooth presentation and you're not confident out front, you're not very good. So all the people who are up there trying to do their good, they're trying to please what their bosses are yeah. saying. But we become not. pleasers. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Learning actually should be uncomfortable. I hate to say it. It should be uncomfortable. Yeah. It should be a stretch. Have you found, uh, I mean, demands for your business working with your clients, have you found this difficult to achieve across Zoom, across, uh, you know, WebEx, Microsoft Teams, just, you know, remotely? This, how, do you, yeah. how do you actually achieve those things, just personally speaking? Because um, right now, obviously, we're all behind cameras and laptops and, and desktops. We're not in the room anymore. But um, how have you made that work for you and your business? Oh, I've, I've found it's actually been fabulous, apart from not having to sit on airplanes anymore. Oh. You know, five, five, airplanes just get worse and worse every year. Five yeah. flights a week and hotels yeah. when you never know whether people have cleaned them or not and all that kind of stuff, being a hygiene freak as I am. But um, no, I've loved it actually. And mm. I've discovered 
um, how important that these principles work in the virtual space. So I'm loving breakout rooms. I'm loving sending people out where there's only two or three people to talk to each other. And I'm making it just a wee bit uncomfortable without making it unbearable, where people do have to, it's either silence or they get through the conversations I ask them to have. Mm. That seems to work. I mean, it's all about problem solving. Um, so I um, I don't use PowerPoints as a general rule. Um, I will occasionally throw them into to, to Zoom, but more often than not, we have conversations. I ask people to mm. tell me what's going on. And it feels very much like a, a classroom, except I can go down to my kitchen and get a coffee made the way I like it rather than out of a Keurig machine, which is much nicer than most training centres. So I like it. I don't know if that makes much sense other than I think at the end of the day, the trainers who get results are the ones who ignore the rules. And that's probably the heart of what con the Confessions book is all about. Because the book I you wrote, yeah. Rules. Yep. I don't try and be a good presenter. I don't always follow the script. In fact, usually I throw the script out. Um, because the people in the room are the script. They will tell us what they need if we listen. Um, and teaching is more listening than telling. Um, and I find by doing exactly that same thing in the virtual space, it becomes pretty, pretty, pretty powerful. Um, I, I, um, I learned this actually out in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska is one of my favourite towns in the Midwest, partly because they have the best steakhouse ever that does prime rib. And I'll go to Lincoln, Nebraska anytime I can just to eat their prime. I mean, sorry, to spend time working with folks. Actually, yes, of course. <laughs> actually, um, I'll be honest and say the people that I do tend to work out there are lovely people. They're terrific. Um, and I have a, a ball with them. But I was doing a workshop on how to make video with your cell phone. It was about seven, maybe 10 years ago. And we did two of these in, because they were sold out. So we had 30 or 40 people on the Tuesday, 30 or 40 people on the Wednesday. I did everything textbook on the Tuesday. I explained how to do video editing step by step, following the proper instructional uh, design process of, you know, explain, uh, overview, demonstration, break it down, get people to practice. Now, don't go, don't go to the next step. Wait until I'm there. No, 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 don't go, don't go. Okay, mm. now we can all move. To I did everything right. Anyway, that night, um, I just didn't feel right about it. So the following day, I said, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm not going to do that careful, nicely presented demonstration that I did and that was governed by a former talk show host. I was a talk show host once upon a time. Everything had to be clearly presented. I said, blow that. I said, folks, here's what I'm going to do. Some of you are going to find me too slow. Some of you are going to find me too fast. And some of you don't even want to listen to me. You just want to go and play anyway. Let me just spend 10 minutes and show you the overview. Then you go and figure it out yourself and I'll be your coach and I'll wander around and help you. Mm. I threw out every rule about how to demonstrate software. We got the best results I have ever seen. And I did that program online just a few um, weeks ago. I did exactly the same thing. I was petrified because I can't see them, what they're doing with their cell phones when I'm sitting in my office here, I have to trust them. <laughs> and this is the other part about learners. Learners are incredible. And if we trust them, mm. they do great things. And, and um, that, that sounds to me like, Jonathan, like you're talking about the flipped classroom where traditionally we have a, a model of, of classroom instruction where in going back to the beginning of the conversation, we are the person at the top of the room. We are the center of uh, attention. We are the disseminator of information. Um, and everything comes through us, but it sounds to me like your what you did in Nebraska is where we literally make them the center of attention, and we're there to shift the to a learner-centered model where we're facilitating this learning opportunity, this learning experience, 
we're introducing them to uh, possibilities um, and we're giving them the options on how to learn. And then we're making sure that happens and they're consulting us if, if necessary for guidance. Is that fair to say? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and, and as we go through, because look, I know this, you're the interviewer. I was always told when I was in broadcasting, you never, as an interviewer, you never let the person being interviewed ask you a question. It's wrong. And if you don't mind me flipping. Go for it. <laughs> I'm interested to know from your experience, because you've been, you, you've been around the block a few times in this game. I mean, have you also found that when you let go and you trust the learner, let them fiddle and Instead of you having to fire hose them with content, you can actually- I've done both. And I've found sometimes when I feel like I'm on what Amy Cuddy calls an evaluative situation where perhaps there's someone else coming into, let's say someone from HR uh, to inspect the training, I feel this pressure to talk and talk and talk. Uh, it's as if people think, well, what's that person doing? I'm not getting value for money. They're doing all yes. the work. What's he doing? Um, but I must say in truth, when I've I've enjoyed training much more- when I see people come to their own conclusions. And, and often, I think also because as a qualified coach, I feel that uh, a coach believes in the innate creativity of people and feels that, you know, if, if we're dealing with competent people, we should be able to facilitate uh, a transfer such that they discover what they need to discover as answers to their particular predicaments. Uh, if we go in with with this prescribed model of this is the course, this is what you need, this is how we're going to do it, we're overlooking um, the natural creativity of the people we're training. And I find often if I ask something in a particular way, that is training in itself. Someone saying yes. to me, oh, that's a great question. And I can hear the silence. And all of a sudden someone says, I've never thought of that before. And now that's the magic of learning happening. So I'm thinking... You know, when I've let go to answer your question, um, I'm not sure if I, I'm, well, I'm learning, but, but more importantly, they're learning. And this is also conducive to peer learning. When I can facilitate someone saying something and someone else in the group latching onto that, I feel like my, I'm doing my work properly uh, because they'll be there when I've left the classroom. They'll be there when I've left the room. And if I can create the conditions where they go, hey, that's a great idea. Why don't we do this? And it comes from them because it's come from them. It's more likely to be owned by them and taken seriously by them and implemented by them. Well, and it's interesting you say that because a couple of things to that. The first thing is I actually think uh, the coaching model, kind of exemplified by ICF, their coaching model, and I know it's one of many different coaching models, but their coaching model, the whole idea of trusting the learner, um, that coaching model is probably the best mental framework or mental representation of how training should be. And in my workshops, one of the things that I really work hard is to encourage people to adopt that approach because, first of all, we can't do the learning for them. Mm. It's their neurons that must fire <laughs> yeah. to build, right? And unless we ask those questions, and sometimes those questions will be causing problems to think through if it's, you know, if it's a, a soft skills course or whatever else, more often than not, um, they're going to be using the resources that they know they need back on the job rather than us giving them kind of pretentious mm. fake resources, you know. So I think absolutely spot on. I think in letting go of the control and giving the learners control, the one, um, the, I teach a bunch of different trainer-trainer programs. I teach on ATD's master trainer program. Oh, wow. Uh, but I also teach my own. And um, 
and and there are so many different ways for us. I call it the orange philosophy. If 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 I give you an orange, you might cut it into quarters and eat it that way. I might peel it and eat each individual wedge. Somebody else might just juice it and put it into a glass. At the end of the day, it tastes like orange. It's going to feel like orange and you get vitamin C. So the same thing goes with learning. We can cut it and dice it many different ways. But for my private clients, I, I use a model that I developed, which is a three-part model. And I say for learning to actually happen, first thing is it has to happen on board the learner. And there's three things that we've got to get them to do for learning to happen. And it's got nothing to do whether we're a good presenter or not. As a good presenter, we might help it. As a good presenter, we might not. But the first thing, they need to understand what they're trying to do. Mm. And so our role is to help them build that. And that comes from using their long-term memory and mental models they've got and connecting it with new information. That's where we get that light bulb moment. But understanding is not good enough. They have to remember it. <laughs> it's all very well saying, I understand um, how to um, change a car tire, but I've got to be able to remember how to do that, change that car tire. But beyond that, you need to actually be good at something. So if I'm um, learning a, trans, uh, let's say, a, a transactional sales technique, I need to understand it. I need to be able to remember it. But then in the field, I need to be able to do that, do that well. So... In the way I approach learning, we need to get people to actually do that work. And it's not about what I do in the classroom. It's what they do in their head and sometimes coordinating with their psychomotor skills. But I can't actually help them do any of that unless I create the right moment for the learning. And this is where the coaching mindset is is absolutely incredible because I look at three things that um, we need to influence to help those three stages of understanding, remembering, and mastering to take place. Number one is the physiology has to be right. And that includes emotions. If people, if people are on defense and we know all sorts of things can shut people down, uh, what happens is the blood rushes away from the prefrontal cortex, goes to the adrenal glands, and they're not thinking, they're reacting. So we need to do what we can to make people uh, comfortable and not react. We need to think about physiology, like, are they actually awake to learn? I mean, we don't talk about this in our industry enough. Awake to bit. learn. Awake to learn. So, okay. for example, here's a, and I actually quote this, and I can't remember the guy, the guy from Harvard whose name I can't pronounce. I've got my book, <laughs> so while I'm talking, I'm going to try and find it. Okay. But um, he, he did research that found out that if you, <laughs> this is crazy, if you have four hours of sleep four days in a row, your abstraction and cognitive abilities are equivalent to being twice the legal limit of alcohol for driving. I think that's something to do with the fact that uh, part of what sleep does is it, it helps to clean out detritus from the brain. And I only learned that a couple of years ago. So sometimes the reason you feel a fog is literally because the brain hasn't cleaned itself. <laughs> right, yes. And so what happens is we think we're going to put on this nice little presentation and we do it all very well. We pull out our, our we, we even have these toys that we hand around to get people to do. We give them buzzers and all this kind of stuff. And mm. we use every buzzword and include every fad. If, if, they've, if they've had a rough week, maybe the kid's been sick, so they've been up most nights. Um, maybe they've been drinking too much and they actually come in not really with it. That's going to affect me. So there's physiology. Real quick, they've got the environment. So if the environment whether it's hot or cold, whether it's a political environment, the cultural environment, and then finally the mindset. Do they believe they can actually learn? Mm. And what is their motivation? And are they resilient to put in the hard work? Now, if we don't get any of those things right, and that's what a coach does, right? You know, you go into a coaching session, you spend the first time learning and creating an environment where they're comfortable to actually do the work. Mm. 
If we don't do that, then all the other stuff is going to be infinitely more difficult. And I think that is where um, letting go and trusting the learner to use their resources to make the learning happen becomes really, really powerful. And um, this is what I did in Lincoln, Nebraska. I said, you don't need me taking you step by step as if you're ignorant through this software platform. Let me give you a real quick overview. You can figure it out yourself. I mean, who's ever read the cell phone manual? Hardly anybody. No, we figure it out no. ourselves. So it's interesting. And I think, you know, you talk about coaching and I think that's a fabulous. Yeah, I mean, that's the, it's the principle I learned very on in coaching is, is this concept of appreciative inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we literally try and step into the, um, the coachee's shoes. We, we try to see the problems they're facing and we use, we approach things with curiosity. So it's not about me knowing and proving what I know to you to become the center of attention. It's saying, how can I help you to know what you, or to realize what you already know and to uncover and to unlock and to understand what your next steps are. So if we think of this now, I mean, right now we're talking, you're in Washington, I'm in Ireland. Um, and the classes I had today, so for example, I ran two sessions, one with um, a group in in LA and uh, I think it was Austin. And then before this, uh, a group in London this afternoon. And then before that, a group in Dublin this morning. So a long, long day. I'm I'm kind of itching in a way to, to get back into the classroom. Part of me is not. Um, what's your feeling about the the future of, of training as people who are listening to this perhaps are new to the business um, what advice would you give them about uh, getting used to this new world of uh, the, the flipped classroom and of remote training or adopting to now a more learner-centric model as opposed to a trainer-centric model I think the first thing is that um, the greatest resource we have as trainers are the people who come and sit in our virtual classroom, our physical classroom, mm. whatever we want to call that. The second thing is a classroom doesn't have to be online or in a brick and mortar room. It could actually be a classroom that they build in their own lives somewhere else. So our job at the end of the day, I define learning as uh, in a very clunky way, simply the process, the intentional process of helping people do new stuff or do existing stuff better. That's all we do. And I think as we go forward, we have to be agile and ask ourselves, can we do it in non-traditional ways? And we've been talking about the classroom going out, going away for the last 20 years. I mean, but now we truly are in a situation where learning science says we don't need a classroom. We don't need the virtual space. What we need to do is we need to help people do that, that cognitive piece of building uh, their learning. So I'd say, Learn learn as much as you can about learning science so that our conversations are not about what I'm going to deliver. I was in Paris a few years ago and we we're talking with some stakeholders and somebody asked for a present uh, for a workshop on such and such. And one of my colleagues um, actually was a, a peer. Oh, I've got a presentation on that. Then they asked for something else. Hey, I've got a slide deck on that. It's yeah. not learning. No, 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 it's about. It's a show. It's a show. So how can we get away from that? And how can we educate people? Now, it becomes really intimidating. And this is what I spend most of my time doing, helping people give away their crutches and start tiny baby steps. Uh, you know, if, if, if this looks really scary to walk into a classroom and not know what you're going to do, why not just have a 20-minute session and call it an open session and see where the class takes you? And if it's a huge flop, 
after 20 minutes, you've got your script and your PowerPoint slide to go. And get yeah, I like that. Yeah. But that 20 minutes, I guarantee you, there's a couple of things we need to do. We need to make sure the, the group, the learners are comfortable mm-hmm. and that there's a goal so they know what they're aiming for. But the more we learn them and listen to them, the more we've got to be able to ask them questions about. And the more we can find out what their problems and troubles are, because we make them comfortable about that, the more we can actually let them lead the conversation. Mm. Start baby steps. The other thing, and this is for learning executives, um, and and this is a tough space to be in, I think many organisations are suffering because we all say we're we're all saying we're moving to a post-industrial uh, organization and, and, and yeah, we love to think we are. We're not. We're mm. still stuck in the past and we're mm. still running training classes based on how to line up trainers with available rooms and then available audiences because that's what we still call you know learners' audiences. We have to be able to dump that academy model. And this is more for the strategic people who are doing um, you know, leading you know, organizations with 20 or 30 trainers and ask ourselves. If, if training really is about how we help individuals with their skills, um, do we really need to be planning that far in front? Knowing that all it takes is a pandemic and in two months' time, your entire organisation will look totally different. So what are we doing rather than planning and being good little planners? What are we doing to prepare to be resilient and be on the, on the mark to change constantly as we go through? And I guess, and I, you know what, they're big picture things and I know that, but it's the big picture that's changing. And if we're not with that, we're going to keep going back to say, oh, yeah, I'm being modern because I'm being uh, agile, but I'm just going to plan the next 12 months to be agile. <laughs> it don't work that way. Of course, there's a contradiction in terms, actually, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm reminded of, of um, I'm not sure if this was the precursor to the concept of flipped classroom, was uh, back in 93, Alison King published a book called From Sage on the Stage to Guide on the Side. Um, and that's clever because it highlights the concept of of um, of getting out of the way that you're there to facilitate this this learning environment and and to help people to achieve their learning goals. It, it's tricky to do that because invariably, as I said to you um, earlier on, you ask me a question and I feel sometimes that I have to be the person uh, doing all the talking and thinking, etc. But yeah. the magic actually is when we find ways to to do less talking and to get them to do more thinking and to get them to do more creativity. But if we're working remotely, uh, just coming back to the concept of the, of the flipped classroom for a moment, that, if I've understood this correctly, is predicated on the belief that there's lots of work to do before the training, after the training, or the learning, I should say. Um, and that could involve things like giving people um, some reading to do, uh, something to work on. Um, and then some research to carry out and, and perhaps something to watch. So, and that always speaks to blended learning. So I'm just mm. curious about the, the crossover between blended learning and flipped classroom. Is, is one a part of the other or what's the relationship between blended learning and, class, and flipped classroom? Yeah, no. So there are <clears throat> two ideas that have been developed separately. So mm. the flipped classroom really, um, and, and, this, and I can't remember off the top of my head, two guys that came up with it, one of the guys in Pennsylvania, I've forgotten where the other guy was. Um, it, it really was about making the most of the classroom experience where you've got a trainer or, in their case, a teacher who can give immediate feedback. And instead of doing stuff they don't need to do, such as 
pre-reading or pre-watching a video, right. they can really focus on scaffolding the learner and training mm. and developing them for that. Blended learning really is about, um, and it goes beyond, most people think blended learning, and I'm sure you've seen this, is about having a classroom and an online. And really blended learning is about finding any technique or strategy that helps people learn and blending it. And the question then comes down to what's the best way for the learner to build their learning? And so is it going to be in a classroom where they get immediate feedback or is it reading something on an iPad before or afterwards? Or is it actually going and doing a field trip and examining a problem that they must come back and solve? So they're really they they work well together, but blended learning isn't something that I think neatly fits into the um, to the blended classroom. Um, and the blended classroom, uh, sorry, not the blended classroom. The blended classroom <laughs> it's a new model. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm actually blending them. <laughs> Do you know what? It's so funny. Um, <clears throat> one of the um, with the uh, uh, the one one of the training train the trainer programs uh, that I work with, we actually get people to team teach stuff, and I ask. Um, often for some people to do a 10-minute team teaching session on blended learning. And a number of people have actually brought in blenders and blended stuff. It's been really cool. (laughs) And they say, look at that. When you blend all that, look at the rich colour of what you get. And they hand out and everyone drinks this nice drink. Unfortunately, it's not a real cocktail. It's a mocktail. But anyway, um, so the flipped classroom is generally more associated with doing stuff beforehand. So if we go blended and what I'd like to call an extended classroom, I would suggest what we should be doing is be going beyond just educational approaches and saying, what's in the learning ecosystem that can help people do stuff? Can we get them mentored? Can we get them uh, doing uh having coaching experiences afterwards? Can we put them in touch with a work experience or a project that we know will help right. develop them? And so the question is no longer... When do I use video? When do I use audio? When do All I about use me this? again. It's yeah, yeah. And actually, if we're really clever, we will sit down with a person and say, "Well, tell me how you're going to do it." And then that coaching mindset, asking questions that lead them to tell you how they're going to do it. And there are so many things. And the more I think about this, I've begun to really look around and, and, and talking to you like uh, people like you, Jonathan, I realized there are a bunch of I am things sorry. I'm, 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 I'm not doing. Yes, you're sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm realizing that, uh, you know, there are things that actually would make my job easier by giving people like a runway for learning so they can take off themselves. Um, I love know, that analogy. That's a great metaphor. And, and I like, I like what you said about the, the is, it, is it team teaching where, where someone yep. you give them a challenge and then the team almost becomes a learning pod and they teach themselves. So, so is that like a teach back? Is that the idea? Yeah, teach back. In fact, right. team teaching and teach backs, uh, what's, there's another word for it. I think they call it jigsaws as well. I mean, we've got all the buzzwords in our industry. But these are great ideas because I think a lot of people, again, uh, and I know this because I've talked to many people who are trainers, we feel this pressure to be the center of attention. So I think that's a huge topic in itself. What are the ways in which you as a trainer listening to this could, could take pressure off yourself and involve people more creatively? creatively in how they learn. What are all the things like you mentioned, uh, the team teaching, um, giving them challenges before the training, giving them stuff to follow and and to read and to do outside of training. Um, You you don't have to be doing all the work and and certainly you're not going to get the best results you possibly could be if you insist as a trainer on becoming the center of attention. 
Absolutely. If if we go back to 1885, um, okay, and um, I say that theoretically because you and I are not old enough, but Ebbinghaus and his forgetting curve, you know, oh, the yeah. German psychologist. Mm. Um, so you forget 50% or something after about an hour um, of what you're doing unless you repeat and rehearse or practice that process. And what you're talking there is you, you're at the end of the day, the way I look at learning, and, and this is the way I do my workshops, I don't follow... I have a plan. I'm, I'm not reckless. That's that's important. But my constant question is, I ask three questions. They're always going through my head. What can I do to help them build their understanding? What can I help them do that's going to help them remember it? And the more I can throw it back at the learner, the better it's going to be. But with that, I have to prepare the learner so that they're ready to take on that role and feel comfortable doing it because very often they think they're there for a theatre show. And I think going back to, you mentioned, um, I can't remember what it was in this podcast or just offline before we did it, you talked about going in, an HR person wants you to give this workshop and there's this pressure that you've got to present all the expert information in front of the, we need to be educating the people like those HR people, the people who hire us, the stakeholders, that tell them, you're wasting your money on me if you want me to talk. I'll do it, (laughs) but you're wasting your money. What you'll be getting more bang for your buck is if you let me sit back, watch what Mm. they're doing and help them do it better. But it's an education experience. And I, um, I think it goes to the heart of what we as learning professionals need to be, and that is learning ambassadors. Mm. as much as anything else. We need to be uh, learning ambassadors. I, I did a workshop, and I often tell people this, at, at the BBC, this is 100 million years ago, it was a writing workshop, and I got an email at my desk um, a couple of um, a couple of weeks later from the executive producer of the show and started off, Dear Jonathan, I thought you'd like to know what feedback people were, were giving. I sent a bunch of them on your writing course last month, of course. That's when you decide to go to the loo. I don't want to read what feedback people are giving me. It's going to be horrible, right? <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I scrolled down. It wasn't. And one woman actually said, she said, um, as a result of this workshop, I feel far more confident in writing and I found myself using the techniques Jonathan taught, which are now saving me between 60 and 90 minutes a day. Now, I'm not gloating here because you've got stories like this. I know every trainer has got stories like mm. this. But when you think about it, this woman was saving because I can't count, let's say 60 minutes, not 90. That's one hour a day, five hours a week. A week, That's yeah. 10 hours um, every fortnight. That's 20 hours a month. Every two months, she's saving a whole work week. Now, she can use that time to go to the pub or she can use that time to recharge her batteries. She can use that time to do other work or be more creative. And I think it's when we realise that we can help people be better at what they do that all of a sudden what we offer organisations becomes true, but we can't do it by just talking at people. We have to actually give them the chance to build their learning, but we also need to tell people how we're doing that. And trainers are either hopeless at blowing their trumpet or they do it hopelessly well. When I say hopelessly well, they come across as egomaniacs and we've all met those who tell us how fantastic they are or you you meet the people who can't possibly tell you anything good about them because they're too humble. Mm. We need to find that middle ground where we talk about experiences that we've seen that have changed the way that um, an organisation has run. And I think that's a challenge as much as being good at letting go because we need to really help organisations. It's very much like a physiotherapist. We need to go tell people that, can you see that limp? 
there's a way we can fix that limp. Can I help you on that? Because I've helped 14 other people do it. It's not me. It's them. That they held it. But I can help you get there. And that becomes, I think, something that we need to do. I know I'm going around in circles. And no, you're, you're the guys. guide on the side as opposed to the, the sage on the stage, as, as Alison King says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, we're facilitating this. And I think it takes courage to do that. Um, inevitably, if you feel you're in, uh, as Amy Cuddy calls it, an evaluative situation where you feel that unless I'm talking and I'm entertaining and I'm uh, creating and coming up with answers, people aren't learning. Um, it, it does take courage to say, I'm going to talk less. I'm going to ask more. I'm going to facilitate. I'm going to challenge more. And I'm going to create conditions where people may not hear me talk all the time, but by golly, they come out of here with results. It takes courage to do that, to, to be yeah. less visible and, and to be more of a facilitator. That's for sure. And I think that... Um, it goes back one step there. What are we doing for our own learning? You know, I used to tell mm. uh, my staff that you've got no right to call yourself a learning professional unless you're a professional learner. And yeah, um, so true. What can we do? And it comes back to coaching. Who 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 are our coaches? Are we being coached? Are we being mentored? Because so often they're the ones from outside that can ask those probing questions to release us from being bound to the classroom to being free to release other people's learning. And um, uh, I, I think training, the training industry, we go around telling everybody how they need to spend more money on training to improve their performance. Yet we're the cobbler's children and we don't very often <laughs> do it ourselves. I was doing a master trainer program for the um, Association of Talent Development and a woman came up to me. She said, I've been a trainer now for nine years, and this is the first formal training I've ever had with training, with, um, for, for being a trainer. Isn't that crazy? Oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's hideous. It's an indictment on our industry. And I said, so what do you do? I do the onboard class. So what's the onboarding class? Well, um, I mean, I don't want an onboarding class, but she, in her particular case, it's four weeks of training for everybody new to the organisation. So her department. Is the first point of contact. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they're not even looking after themselves, but they're forcing no. everybody else through a four-week yeah. training class. That's it. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's not uh, finding time to show up on the saw. And I think for people listening who are um, self-employed, who are training professionals, um, perhaps there's the pressure there to make hay while the sun shines. And we, we're so driven and focused on, on making money that we neglect the person who needs training most of all, which is the trainer. Uh, it's you, it's, it's me. We have to sharpen the saw. We've got to be, I mean, how much, let me end on this note, how much time and, and have you some kind of figure in mind in terms of revenue? How much should we as trainers, those who, of us who work for ourselves, be investing in our own learning and development? I'm not sure about revenue. I mean, it's going to be different. I mean, you've got listeners all around the world. I, um, when I was at the BBC and I ran the new media training unit, I, I put in a rule that nobody was allowed to do any formal training on a Friday. That was our day to um, be together, learn from each mm. other, argue with each other, have a bit of fun. If, if, if we can be putting aside a day a fortnight, I think, I think we're in a, in, a, in, a good, in a good place. And actually, it just leads me some, something real quick there, um, Mark. And I know um, you've got people joining you from all around the world, from the Middle East and uh, Asia and places like that. And some of what we talk about seems kind of counter-cultural. Um, a lot of the work I've done, for example, in India and Dubai, um, there's that 
um, that there's that cultural need for the person who is a trainer to be that big expert standing up front as the authority. Oh, for sure. And um, and people struggle with that. And I would just like to just kind of throw in that the idea that the bottom line for us is we need to be getting people to build their learning. Now, giving up that, um, be, being that humble teacher um, who steps aside and lets people do it, I don't think that needs to undermine the role that people kind of appreciate what you bring to the classroom. I just think we need to look at it in different ways. At the end of the day, it's always about honouring the learner and honouring what they do. Mm. And in the West, I think that what we do, we do it in a far more radical, open way. Um, you know, in America, in the UK, places like that. But I think you can still maintain this whole idea of trusting the learner and letting them do the work of the learning by um, by stepping back. But it will just probably look a lot different uh, to honour the cultural yeah, traditions. That's that true. Doing. That's true. Uh, and I, I'm reminded of of the differences even on a short two week trip uh, three two three years ago. Um, I had the privilege of training in Thailand, and just getting people to ask questions was not somehow something they were used to. It was very much a case of I do the talking and you listen. So that's yeah. something to keep in mind is, is, is the, the cultural norms. Uh, but definitely the places I do most of my training uh, in, in the so-called West, um, I feel that when people uh, as a trainer have the courage to actually flip things around and, and challenge more and facilitate more uh, co-creation, uh, people actually come away with, with uh, better learning, better outcomes, it's also more fun and enjoyable for you as a trainer. And if I think if that's something you're doing full-time as a trainer professional, um, it's something you really wanted to focus on. How can I actually make my, my work more enjoyable? And uh, I know when I have less pressure to perform and, and dance around at the top of the stage, um, I'm definitely enjoying my day more. I can facilitate, uh, maintain my energy levels and, and get even better results. And so amazingly well put. We get to we get to control our energy levels, mm. which means that there's more of us to focus yes. on really helping them where they need. Yeah, Jonathan, where can people find out more about you? Uh, my website, jonathanhalls.com, has got lots of stuff, um, and I write for various publications. Uh, I write for ATD a lot. In fact, I've got a uh, a new article coming out. It's actually a checklist for video production in the learning oh. field coming out with the Learning Guild, which comes out, I think, in the next week or two. So, uh, And you but, wrote a book on that topic, didn't you, a while ago? Yeah, I've got a couple of books on video and podcasting uh, and uh, general digital media content for learning. Brilliant. So, thank you so much for being my guest on the show, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure, and thank you. And do you know what really just disappoints me most about this being a guest on your show, Mark, is that I couldn't flip it enough to get more from you. But I know you t- you're the guy asking a question, but <laughs> we'll I would like to learn time. more from your experience. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you for asking me that question. I think you're one of the first people to actually do that, uh, to ask me a question. It's about time, and, and uh, thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks. <laughs> A huge thanks to Jonathan for being my guest today on the show and for spending time. We had a couple of tech issues, um, but we managed to change platforms and get this fixed. And I appreciate Jonathan's patience for making today's episode possible. And of course, you can find out more about Jonathan, his writing, his training and his products by visiting his website, which is jonathanhalls.com. That's jonathanhalls.com. Jonathan also writes for the ATD 
and you can find his blog posts on td.org. And of course, thanks to you for your time today, wherever you are right now listening to this. The time of recording is May 2021. It's just about to become June. I have no idea where the year has gone. But um, I'm delighted to know that you're finding value in the episode, so please keep those messages coming to me. If you've got suggestions for guests and future topics, you can reach me personally via mark at trainingbusiness.com. And for that reason, I'd love you to subscribe to the show, and you can do so on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. There is, as there is, and will always be a fresh episode every single Thursday. So until next time, next Thursday, when I look forward to your company, please keep safe, look after yourself and loved ones, and catch you next time. Bye for now. once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.